right, we are continuing to work our way through John chapter 6, the longest chapter in John. And so we're trying to try and cover as much ground as we can, while at the same time not hopefully missing too much. So John chapter 6, and just to kind of remind you of where we are, what's been going on, Jesus has fed the multitude. He's fed uh, over 5,000 people with a few loaves and two fish, and, and then those people try to take Jesus by force and make him king, which he, that's not what he wants. That's not his will. He is king, but he's not the kind of king they want. And so he withdraws from them. And then later on that night, he walks across the water to join the disciples, and they sail on. The next day, the people find him across the ocean, or across the sea, excuse me, in Capernaum. And they say, when did you come here? And he challenges them. He says, look, you're looking for me because you got bread, and you ate your fill, uh, not because you really want me. And he challenges them. He says, so... Seek food, work for food, not that perishes, not that's going to rot, but food that endures to eternal life. And then he says that he, he has that food. He offers that to them. That's why he has come. And so they end by saying, or they, they, that part of the conversation ends with them saying, Sir, give us this bread. Give us this bread that goes on for life. But, but they still are thinking and just... They're still thinking of just bread. They haven't quite understood what he means. And so we pick up in verse 35. And Jesus makes, says this. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, because I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Well, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Let's pray. Father, this is a difficult passage. Jesus says very strong things here. And we may be unclear what exactly he means when he uses such strong language. So, Holy Spirit, we would ask for your help in understanding that our eyes would not be blind like the crowd who listened but that our eyes would be opened, that we would understand, Lord, change us by the power of Your Word, by the power of Your Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus tells the crowd, I am the bread of life. And then, it's almost as if He kind of pauses for a second because He said, whoever comes to Me uh, will not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never first thirst. And then he kind of has to pause and say, but here's what it means for you to come to me, because right now you're not. And so that's where we'll spend most of our time. That's what, um, that's what verses 36 through 47 are really about, is Jesus kind of puts this whole bread thing over here, and he says, but before we get there, let's talk about what it means to come. Let's talk about what it means for you to approach me and how that has to happen. This is is an anonymous hymn written sometime near the end uh, of the 1700s. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek Him, seeking me. "'Twas not I that found, O Savior, true. "'No, I was found of Thee.'" And that hymn really captures what Jesus says here in John 6. Not that we have sought after the bread, but really that we have been compelled to come and eat the bread. The whole idea in this passage is that if you come to believe in the Son, which you must, if you are to have life, if you come to believe in the Son, it is because you are drawn by the Father. And that's controversial. That's not very democratic. It's not very democratic. It's hard for us to swallow that pill that in order for us to come and eat the bread, that we must be drawn from outside of ourselves. 
that we just can't make an even-footed decision and say, oh, this is death and this is life, I'm going to choose life. That as we see, as we get into this passage, that there's something wrong with us. There's something wrong with our eyes and with our appetites. And so, really, God must do the work of drawing us, of compelling us to come and eat the bread. Let's look at some of Jesus' statements. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. This is a pretty shocking claim. Moses would never have said this. And if you remember from last week, this whole episode has a lot of uh, parallel to what the Israelites did with Moses in the wilderness. There was bread provided there. They grumbled there. And so that whole scene is kind of being replayed again here in the life of Jesus. But this time... The guy in charge is making claims that Moses never would have. Jesus is saying, I am the bread. I am the life you need. What I give, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. My flesh is true true food. My blood is true drink. And what I am giving you, you cannot find anywhere else. I am the fulfillment of what Moses looked forward to. Nobody has ever talked like this. It's a shocking Claim What Jesus is saying is, I am the source of everlasting life. If you want life forever, then you can't look anywhere else. If you want to satisfy your hunger forever, you can't look anywhere else. If you want to satisfy your thirst forever, you can't look anywhere else. Of course, Jesus is talking about more than physical relief. He's talking about soul hunger and soul thirst. Because within each one of us, right, is this, is this deep abyss, right? This gnawing hunger that we're born with, that, this, that, that we try to fill with everything we possibly can. Right? That was the, the first song we sang, right? That we, we, we scramble in the dust trying to satisfy this soul hunger, And Jesus says, if you come to me, you won't be hungry like that anymore. We strive and we work to satisfy, to get that dusty, cotton mouth taste out. And Jesus says, you know, if you come to me, that'll be gone. Uh, If you've ever ever had appendicitis or pancreatitis or or problems with your small intestine, anything like that. If you've ever had digestive issues, like a major, a major infection, and had to go into the hospital, then you know that you can't eat or drink anything, not even water. And so what they do, if you're in the hospital like that, and you can't even drink water, you can't even eat ice chips, because as soon as you put something in your mouth, it makes all this stuff start working. And the problem is, if you, for instance, if you have pancreatitis... All that stuff's not working. And so if you try to make it work, it actually does more damage. And so you basically have to, and and Mr. Wayne knows how this feels, to be in the hospital and not get any water, right? So you're basically left without any water until everything kind of settles down. Here's Here's how the hospital is nice to you. Here's what they will do for you. They will give you this little brush, and you will dip it in water, and you get to rub it on your lips, and you get to rub it on your teeth to kind of stave off thirst, right? Because you know if you go without water, your lips start cracking, you feel really parched. And so they, they try to help you by, by giving you this little, this little wet brush 
to kind of make that sensation go away. Well, that's kind of what sin does for that soul thirst. You think it's going to work, but the thirst is still there. Your lips may be wet for a little bit. Your teeth may be wet for a little bit, but the thirst is still there. And Jesus says, you know what? I can make that go away. I can make that go away if you will come to me. And here's what Jesus is doing in this statement. He's revealing two things. First, he's revealing the, the true heart of sin. Now, if, so sin is, is basically this, right? Let's define sin first. That's a churchy word, so let's define it. Sin is not doing or thinking or believing what God wants you to do, right? It's, it's basically saying, I choose something else other than God. It is rejecting God's authority in your heart and in your actions. That's what sin is. The question is, why would you ever do that? I mean, it seems pretty reasonable, right, that if God gives a command, well, and he promises life, that we would just do it, right? If, if things, all things being equal... But here's the true heart of sin, and you get it from your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents. Here's the true heart of sin. I know better. What God says, right, and this is, what, this is what Eve was tempted with in the garden. Did God really say? And what it says is in Genesis 3 that Eve looked at the fruit. Even though, even though God had said, listen, the moment you eat that fruit, you're going to die. Eve said, you know what, I don't think that's true. In fact, I think that if I eat that fruit, I'm going to be really wise. And so she, take, so she took of it and she ate. She gave some to her husband. And that's it. And now for the rest of history, you and I are born thinking that way. That God is not trustworthy. And I really have the authority to evaluate whether God's claim is true or if there's something else. There's something better. And so that's the nature of sin, that we look at all that God promises, we look at all of God's blessings, and we say, mm, no, I'm going to try and go my own way on this. I think I can do better. I mean, that's, think, I, want you to, I want you to think, take a second, and think of your most besetting sin. Or if you're not a Christian, um, think of that problem area in your life, that behavior that you can't seem to do away with, Right? Think of your most besetting sin and apply this principle. Why do you do what you do? It's, it's true in relationships. The reason you say, the, the reason you're going to enter into a relationship that will damage every other part of your life is you say, no, 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 this is good. This is good. God is wrong. This is good. It'll be okay. Right? The reason you make that unethical business decision is because you say, ah, I know honesty would be good, but the profit margin is so great. I can overlook honesty for profit. The reason that you say, I know mom would be furious with me, but I just want to be liked. I just want to be accepted. What we're doing is we are rejecting the good, because we think that there's something better. And to borrow Jesus' language, what we're saying is, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, and I just want something. And that looks pretty good. That looks pretty delightful. 
That looks like it will satisfy me. So here's the nature of sin. The less good that God looks to you, the more you will wander to other tables looking for something else to satisfy, something that will finally quench your thirst. Jesus also reveals the true nature of faith. If that's what the true nature of sin is, the true heart of sin is saying, God is not good, I want something else, the true nature of faith is, is, is being brought to your senses and saying, no, God is good, and I want Him over and above everything else. And this is crucial, this is crucial to understand about the Christian life. Because there, there's a couple of ways that you can deal with the sin in your, in your life. The first way was you can just give up. You can just say, you know what? Fighting is too hard. I'm so far down in this pit. I'm so far down this well. The pleasure is not even really there anymore. But I just, I'm just tired and the battle seems too, too hard. I, I'm, not, I'm not ever going to climb out of this, so you just give up. The other way to deal with that, the other way to deal with the nature of sin in your life is by your sheer willpower to say, I'm going to be the master. I'm going to triumph. I'm going to beat this. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. And so here's how you then respond to the lazy people. You look at them and say, guys, Come on, it's just a, it's a simple matter of consequences. Just buckle up. Strap on your boots. You're confident that as long as you have the negative consequences in view, you will be able to defeat the sin in your flesh. But here's what happens to you if you're this person. You actually become arrogant. You actually become proud. You are the, the Pharisee in the parable that we read earlier. Just like Matthew said, you, you take your righteousness and, your, and you use it to boast before God and before other people. And so really, you're not eating at Jesus' table either. You're eating at your own table. And then there's the third way. And it's really characterized in a sermon by a Puritan pastor from the early 1800s named Thomas Chalmers. Uh, and his sermon is titled this, you can't do this anymore. Uh, it says, Ex- the expulsive power of a new affection. What in the world does that mean? The expulsive power, like, I feel like that, uh, that's a term that ought to take me to the doctor's office. I've got an expulsive power. Um, here's, what, here's what Chalmers is saying. All right, let's, use, let's do this by way of illustration. You're, you're, you remember the first boyfriend or girlfriend and how, how wonderful your relationship... Now, some of you, maybe you didn't date like in middle school and high school. Maybe your parents won't let you. That's really good. That's probably a good idea. Um, for those of us who didn't go that route, right? Eighth grade, man, she hung the moon. There was, there was, there was nobody better. And for the five months, those five glorious months, they were like an eternity, Right? You know, you talked on the phone every night because that's all you could do. You couldn't go anywhere. You just saw her at school. You'd put notes in the locker. It was great, right? Occasionally, your parents might drop you off at the movie theater and you would go with your other friends. 
five glorious, wonderful months. And then it was over. And you were devastated. And you thought, how in the world? Nobody will... I'll never love anybody like that again. All right? All my middle school friends are like, why is, it, why is everybody laughing? This is my life. And all the older folks are like, because it's not real. All right. You think, no one's ever going to love me like that again. Right? You're just devastated. You're wiped out. Uh, it seems like your whole world is crashing down. How did you get over that? The next girlfriend. I found her. Somebody better. Right? And all of a sudden, those five months disappeared into a new eternity of six months, right? Um, that, that is, in a joking way, that is the ex- what you needed was a new affection to expel the old one. A new and better love has to push the other one out. That's true in human experience, and it's definitely true in the Christian life. As long as you seek to do battle against your flesh on your own steam, you will either fail or you will become proud. But you will not be living by faith. And Hebrews 11 says that without faith it is impossible to please God. What is faith? What is the true nature of faith? It's laying hold of the greater affection of Jesus and letting go of the old. Right? You can't, you can't, I can't pull weeds out of my lawn and expect them not to grow back if something else doesn't grow in their place. Right? Something else has to take its place or it just grows back. And so it is with sin. Uh, I've been in student ministry for, for quite some time, and standard fare in youth ministry is this. Right, if we're going to have a special gathering or conference or retreat or disciple now or whatever, the messages that I remember from my youth were, don't do that, stop it, uh, do this instead. But I don't want to offer our students that, and I don't want to offer you that. Because what Jesus offers is not, hey, here's something that you could kind of trade off with. He says, come eat the bread. What you're doing is not bread. Come eat the bread. I'm better. And if you don't replace the old way of life with a new and better thing, you cannot expect that your sin will ever die hard. Right? And so Jesus is, Jesus in letting, is letting us into the true nature of, of sin and the true nature of faith. And the only real and lasting way to live by faith and fight sin is to see that Jesus is the antidote to everything else. He is to expel sin... To expel the the lesser loves, you have to replace them with a greater. And Jesus is the greater love. But they don't get that. They don't understand that. Verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me. You've seen what I can do. And yet you do not believe. You don't trust me. I've told you that I am the bread. I've told you to come to me. I've told you to trust me, but you don't. Later on in verse 41, they grumble about him, just like the Old Testament people grumbled about Moses. And they said, hey, we know this guy. This is Jesus. It's Joseph's boy. 
We know his mom, his dad. We grew up right around the corner. How can he be saying he's from heaven? We know where he's from. We don't believe. There's, there's something wrong with our eyes. There's something wrong with our appetites. They see the bread, but they don't see the bread. They reject his claims because they think they know him. They're blinded by their unbelief, which is what unbelief does. It always blinds us to reality. And something is wrong with my eyes because something is wrong with my heart. And so the question is, if I am blinded by unbelief, how in the world, what, what is God going to do about that? And that's the second thing we see, that the Father's purpose in saving people through the Son is invincible. He is not put off by their unbelief. He says, I've said to you that you've seen me and yet do not believe. And then he says this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Let's look at those statements. All that the Father gives me. And so there's this implication that Jesus' people, the, the, the people that Jesus has come to save, are a gift to him, wrapped in a bow and presented. They are given to him. And he takes them. And because they are given to him, he will not let them go. Just kind of let's, let's follow the progression. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, because I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So, I haven't come to work on my own, I've come to do the will of God. Okay, well, what is the will of God? Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So, in the face of unbelief, in the face of people who will not listen or really see, Jesus says this, don't worry, all that the Father gives, they're going to come. The people for the feast, they'll come to the feast. And when they come, I'm not letting them go. I will never cast them out. I will receive them and I will keep them and I will carry them all the way to the last day when I raise them up from the dead. And he says that over and over and over again. When you believe, you will be raised up on the last day. Jesus is saying that I have my people from beginning to end and I will bring them home. So even in the face of unbelief, Jesus says, don't worry, I've got this. Those who come will be kept all the way to the resurrection of the last day. What about human ability? What about free will? Verse 41, the Jews grumble about Jesus. They say, how can he make these claims? Jesus answers them in verse 43. Don't grumble. Don't grumble among yourselves. You're thinking about this the wrong way. You can't. Raise your eyes above your perspective. No one can come to me. No one literally is able. That's the word right there for can. Ability. It's not a question of desire. 
I desire to breathe underwater. That would be a pretty handy skill to have. You would pay a lot of money to me if I had that skill. But I do not have the ability. Even if I have the desire, I am unable to do that. Jesus says in verse 43, No one can come. No one is able to come unless the Father who sent me draws, pulls, compels, literally drags. No one is able to come to me unless the Father drags them to me. What hope do we have in our own unbelief? The fact that God's purpose is invincible and that those whom He has set aside and given to the Son, He will draw to the Son. So my only hope of coming to the bread, my only hope of coming and eating, is the compelling love of the Father. And if I'm going to come, I must be compelled to come. And if Jesus draws, Jesus will raise you up. How does the Father draw? It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So what Jesus is referring to in the Old Testament are these promises. These promises that one day God's Word won't just work on the outside, but it's actually going to move inside. You'll find this in Isaiah 54, Jeremiah 31, and Ezekiel 36. God's Word is going to move inside of His people and draw them and transform them. Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of that moment. I am that promise come to life. And the way that we are dragged or drawn or wooed or compelled to come to the Father is through the Word of the Son, through the teaching of the Son. And when we hear His voice, we come and believe. And so Jesus is saying, if you truly understand the Father's promises, you will come to Me because I'm the only one who's seen Him. I'm the only way He can be revealed. And if you ignore Me, you do so at your own peril. And if you trust me, you will have everlasting life. Jesus finishes his speech, and we don't have time to walk all the way through it. But he says all of these really strange things, and this will be kind of our introduction to the Lord's Supper. He says all of these really strange things about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which, by the way... There's, a, there's, a, there's good reason for these people to be offended, right? If I told you that, you would be offended, and rightly so, rightly so. That's cannibalism, and that is against the law. It was against the Jewish law. And you know what? Even, even the blood of the sacrifices, they were not allowed to drink. The blood had to be poured out. They didn't drink blood. They ate the sacrifice, but they didn't drink it. And so they are offended by what Jesus says. But here's his point. That when you come to me, it is, it is just as if you are taking in my flesh and taking in my blood. We are, the, reason that, the reason that it is offensive to cannibalize is, one, because you're violating the dignity of another human being. But two, because in the blood is the life, as the Old Testament says. You're taking, you're taking a life into you that is not yours. 
But Jesus says that's exactly what has to happen. You have to become one with me. See, Jesus is talking about union with him. That's why he uses such strong language. You have to be one with me. And if you're not going to be one with me, if you're going to not eat my flesh and not drink my blood, not literally, but figuratively, if you're not going to become one with me, you will not have life. But if you do, if you are united to me, if you eat the bread, you will live forever. Because what I have is better than anything else you've ever had. Your fathers that you think so much of who ate the manna in the wilderness, they all died. They're, they're buried in the desert. Or they're buried all over the Middle East. But when I give you, when you take of me, you will never die. You will live forever. You have eternal life now in the present. And you will be raised up to new life on the last day. That is Jesus' offer. Jesus' offer is to come and believe. And you may say, well, you said I can't come unless I'm drawn. That's right. So how do I know then that I'm being drawn? Is that offer appealing to you? Do you want to believe and have everlasting life? then friend, that is the drawing, that is the wooing of the Spirit. If you hear Jesus' words and you want them, you want to take them into you, you want His flesh, you want His blood, you want to be one with Him, that's the wooing of the Spirit. Come and believe and do so to eternal life. As we come to the the table, Jesus would give us uh, on the Last Supper... He kind of develops this idea. Jesus isn't so much talking about communion here, but the idea is the same. That what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper is our union with Him, our fellowship with Him. That because we are united to Him, we have fellowship. And because I am united to Him and you are united to Him, if you are united to Him, we have fellowship. And so this is a table of fellowship. It is a table of sharing together. But here's what that means. Here's the warning attached to that. That if you are not in fellowship vertically with the Lord Jesus and horizontally with the rest of the church, then you come to this table at your own peril. This is a, this is a family meal. It's not mine. It's not Grace Fellowships. It's not the PCAs. It's the church's. It's Jesus's. Jesus has given it to the church. But you must know Jesus to come to it. And so I would urge you again that if you hear the words of the Son of Man and you feel drawn by the Spirit, come to the Lord Jesus. Christian, this table is for you. It is for you to once again remember what Jesus, in giving His flesh for the world, has done. He gave His flesh so that you wouldn't have to. He spilled His blood so that you wouldn't have to. And so every time we gather, we remember and we wait. We wait for the blessed day when we will celebrate the cup with Him forever. Let me pray.
Father, we thank you for your word, hard as it may be. We pray, Lord, that you would bless it. God, now as we come to the table, we ask that you would uh, prepare our hearts, help us to take and receive in faith the bread and the juice, the flesh and the blood of the risen Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.